It's in your computer. It's in your house. It may even be in your uterus. It's copper. The earth is a rich and vast storehouse. From it come all the materials that we use. Of the most important of these materials is copper. Without copper, our modern world as we know it could not exist. From Brick in downtown Brooklyn, I'm Mackenzie Fagan, and this is Glitter and Doom, a show about artists and cultural creators who are responding to the most pressing issues of our times. Humans have been extracting copper from rocks since at least 5,000 BCE. Utsi the Iceman, whose mummy was found in the Tyrolean Alps and who's believed to have lived around 3300 BCE, was preserved in the snow along with his copper axe and knife. The Aztecs gargled with a solution that included copper to cure sore throats. One of the Dead Sea Scrolls was written on copper. Thousands of years later, we have Robitussin and we're 3D printing our weapons, but copper still has a wide array of uses, from electrical circuitry to storing nuclear waste to making blue-colored fireworks. I know I sound like I'm sponsored by copper, but I'm not. Although I could be. Please call me, Copper Barons. But I'm not the only one who wants to corner you at a dinner party and talk about ductile metals. Artist Marisa Moran-John's interest in copper began when she discovered that she had somewhat unwittingly agreed to have a piece of the metal inserted in her uterus. That launched her into a wormhole of copper-related research, culminating in her latest interdisciplinary project, Snatural History of Copper, which she's presenting at the upcoming Creative Time Summit here in New York. I recently sat down with Marisa to talk about reproductive health care, extractive industries, and Byzantine fertility chapels. Marisa Moranjan, thank you so much for joining me today on Glitter and Doom. Um, You are participating in the 10th annual Creative Time Summit. That is an annual convening for thinkers, dreamers, and doers working at the intersection of art and politics. And this year, there is a specific central question, which is, can speaking truth to power unravel the age of disillusion we find ourselves in? I'm curious about how that central question informed the way you thought about what you were going to present at the Creative Time Summit. So the start of my inquiry was that I was going through my medical records and I found that I had a copper IUD and I knew an intrauterine device. And I knew that I had an intrauterine device, but I didn't know it was made out of copper. And I thought, how do I not know about this piece of technology that's in my very own snatch? And so I then started looking into the history of copper, how it does what it does inside the body, um, and its history of extraction and so forth. Um, And when Trump was elected, there was a spike by 900% in women seeking IUD because it lasts for 10 years, which would outlast his presidency. 900%. 900%, yeah. And at the same time, in this current presidential administration, our EPA chief, Andrew Wheeler, is a former coal lobbyist. 
and there has been a lot of um, regulation rollbacks. And I wanted to know what extraction, in particular, you know, using the lens of copper extraction to wend my way through these different topics, I wanted to know what what's at stake today and what people are doing about it. And all this thinking led to an interdisciplinary project called Snatural History of Copper. Is that right? That's correct, yeah. Um, I want to ask a little bit about your your own relationship to your IUD. So you said that you didn't realize that you had copper implanted in your own body. How did you decide that you wanted an intrauterine device as your form of birth control? And what was that process like? Obviously, it wasn't explained to you what it actually was. Before you give birth, American women and their gynecologists have the conversation about what's your plan afterwards or what's your fertility plan. And the IUD was suggested to me, and it seemed like a good idea because it lasts 10 years and you don't really think about it. And this conversation was happening while you were pregnant or while or I was before pregnant you, and before I gave birth. And then what often happens is right immediately after you give birth, you receive the IUD. So like I didn't even see it kind of situation. Right. I just trusted it. The IUD has a spotty history in the United States because in the 50s through the 70s, the people who invented it in partnership with NGOs and governments are seeing it as a solution to the population bomb. So people are getting scared because brown people all over the world will rise up. And so we need to control populations. And and the United States government forcibly sterilized a third of the women in Puerto Rico um, and really incentivized and would in fact punish many in some places like Los Angeles punish poor women of color unless they had long-term reproductive technologies. Right. I know that there were cases where women would go before a judge for sentencing, Mm -hmm. and the judge would say, well, I'll give you a lighter sentence if you agree to have an IUD implanted. Correct. It just really kind of quashed the IUD market for a long time because it was such a backlash, and rightfully so. And so it wasn't then until the late 90s, early 2000s, that this new IUD called the Paragard entered the market. It's really not in the public conversation at all in America and for American women. There's other countries where in France, it's 22% of women have IUD. In Nordic countries, 42% of women have IUDs. Um, In America, it's 7%. So it's not part of our puritanical culture to talk about women's desire or reproductive health and then the maintenance of fertility and so forth. And then it has this history that was really kind of covered over and the way that people present the IUD, it's shifting today, but has mostly been marketed towards and targeting American mothers. And there are two main models of IUD on the market, my understanding is, Mm -hmm. that one is based on hormones, Mm -hmm. much like oral contraceptives that you might take. And the other one is copper. That's right. Yeah. Well, how does a copper IUD work? Like, Oh, the questions around it? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, how how does a copper IUD prevent pregnancy? Okay. So the thing about copper that makes it really fascinating is that it's normally found in abundance around the earth. It's malleable. It is naturally conductive, and it's what material scientists called electro-winning. So it's exchanging electrons with the things that it comes in contact with, which is why people use it as an antibacterial and use it in doorknobs in hospitals. Inside your body, it is creating this cloud of electrons around the IUD, and it zaps the incoming sperm. 
In the case that a sperm does happen to get fertilized, it prevents nidation. So it prevents the sperm from lodging into the walls and becoming a fetus. Regis, I'd like to phone a friend. Hi, Jessica. Hi. How are you? I'm really good, thank you. Um, Thank you for talking to me today. Would you please tell the good people what it is you do for a living? Sure. I'm a comprehensive sex educator, uh, which means I counsel folks one-on-one at the clinic that I work at. And during the school year, I teach sex ed workshops to ninth graders in the local public schools. I imagine you talk about birth control a lot. A bunch of times. Yes, I do. That's a big subject that comes up. What do you think about IUDs? It has a complicated history, of course. Um, the majority of gynecology is uh, has a really unfortunate history surrounding um, a lot of invasive, ill-informed, non-consensual basically experimentation on primarily people of color and low-income people. And uh, so I think that that is a really important thing to keep in mind, especially when I'm counseling people. Um, But when it comes to IUDs, they are very, they're very convenient for people who know that they don't want to be pregnant for at least a year. So once someone has an IUD, it's very low maintenance. It's once it's in, it's doing its job. The pregnancy protection rate is extremely, extremely high. It's not 100%, of course, but the likelihood of getting pregnant off of an IUD is really, really low. And, um, and if people like it, it can last for several years but it's also not perfect. Um, And the copper IUD, also known as the Paragard, doesn't have hormones, but it um, usually causes people's periods to be a lot heavier and usually more painful. It's, uh, it's such a, it's such an understandable deterrent for so many people who are really frustrated with hormonal birth control, but don't opt to get the copper IUD because it's very likely that their periods will go from maybe five days to eight or nine days. Why is that? um, There's actually very little information that physicians (laughs) know about why the Paragard even works in the first place. They know that If sperm comes into contact with copper, it will die. That being said, the uterus also reacts to the copper. Um, It can sometimes get a little inflamed, but it's it's actually not studied very well. They just know that it works. Oh, surprise, surprise. We're not studying women's reproductive health very well? That's crazy. Yeah, they're just like, this works. Uh, I don't really know why, but hey, you should just be thankful for it. Let's right. put this inside of you. We have 20 drugs that'll make your dick hard, but meanwhile, we don't know why <laughs> copper makes you, you no idea. <laughs> get we pregnant. have no idea. Something about sperm and something about making your periods a lot heavier and more crampy. So we've talked about this checkered history with IUDs. Does that, especially with communities of color. And you work in Jamaica, Queens. A lot of your patients are people of color. 
I'm curious about, does that enter at all into your thinking when you are recommending forms of birth control for people? Oh, 100%. Um, I think that any good sex educator um, needs to be very aware of the um, very like violent and racist history of gynecology, um, especially if they are a white person counseling people of color. And while I make sure that I educate my my patients, in no way do I want to give off any sort of energy of knowing better than they do. Um, it's so easy to kind of uh, feel like you... <sighs> don't know anything about your body. And I never want my patients to feel like that. Like my job is just to hold space for what they need to discuss and to give them accurate information. What they do with that information is totally up to them. But I will never, ever try to convince someone, right, to go on birth control or to get an IUD. I like I'm not a traveling salesperson. I'm not here to feel, fill any sort of quota around birth control. Although the idea of you being a traveling salesperson for IUDs <laughs> is pretty funny. <laughs> With my Ding little dong. my little briefcase and my my is, is the lady of the house home? <laughs> <laughs> Anyone need a diaphragm? <sighs> Jessica. Um, so thank you so much for the work that you do. Love you, honey. Love you. Bye. Bye. The use of copper for IUDs and the fact that it prevents pregnancy seems like only one of the many mysterious facets of copper. And I don't yeah. know if this has to do with it being electro-winning, which is a great hashtag that everyone should use, <laughs> um, or that it's a noble metal, which is another amazing mm -hmm. term. But there are so many things, like if you put it in your uterus, you don't get pregnant. If you leave it out in the air, it turns green. Mm -hmm. If you whip eggs in it, your <laughs> eggs are stiffer. And it feels like, I mean, I don't know anything. I don't know anything about how this works. I imagine it has to do with this electron transference, but it seems like a magic mm -hmm. metal. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I think there's enough there's enough questions to keep me entertained for, for a lifetime. <laughs> and it also invites me to have conversations with different kinds of scientists, to anthropologists and so forth. Because a big question for me was, well, how did people first discover that it functions like a contraceptive? And yeah, who was much like who's the first person who ate an oyster? Who was the first person who put <laughs> copper up or snatch? So, OK, I found this image of what's called a pessary and it looks like a small donut. And I have to say it looks a little bit it's a little bit oxidized in the image. It's from 400 BCE and it goes in the cervix and there it's like a, it has a little hole and there's a, a stem that goes through it. So presumably you dilate the cervix, it goes in there. And then, you know, the electrical winning properties of of um, copper. And it's made so, out of copper. Yeah. Okay. Uh, bronze, so it's uh -huh. an alloy. And the stem goes down, so you can always take it out. But 400 BCE really is mind-blowing because it asks the question of this very question. How long have we known um, that copper does this? And who was the first to figure it out? So there's like, if you look on the internet, there's a host of different urban legends, like Arab camel traders put copper in the uterus of their camels to prevent them from getting pregnant. That has been dispelled. What a weird urban legend to start. Yeah. And then in the 1920s, there was a guy, Jaime Zipper, who discovered that 
copper inside the uterus of rabbits functions like a contraceptive. And this is the basis of today's IUD. What was so, Jaime Zipper getting up to <laughs> that he discovered this? I don't know what this, I mean, he's a Chilean scientist. Most of the copper in the world comes from Chile. Copper was first mined in 8700 BCE. In the West, we say in the island of Cyprus, I don't, it's hard for, I haven't yet learned about how it was discovered in the East, but I know that this is the time of the Copper Age, 8700 BCE, on the island of Cyprus, which is the same birthplace as Venus of Aphrodite. According to Theogony, as you'll remember, Aphrodite was born from the foam that appeared around Uranus's severed genitals when Kronos tossed them into the sea. Excuse me? Okay, so we gotta back up. Uranus, the Greek god of the sky, was the son of Gaia, the goddess of the earth. He was also her husband, and together they had 18 children. Now, 18 children is a lot under any circumstances, but it's especially a lot if you hate kids, like Uranus did. In particular, he was so unfond of his youngest six children, three of whom had one eye apiece and three of whom each had 100 hands, that he imprisoned them in a deep, dark abyss. As you might imagine, their mom, Gaia, was not psyched about this, and as you might not imagine, she figured that the only way to voice her displeasure was to convince her non-imprisoned children to castrate their father. Most of her kids were like, nah, that, that seems like something you guys need to work out between yourselves, but one of her sons, Kronos, was like, game on. So Gaia gave Kronos a stone sickle, and the next time Uranus tried to sleep with Gaia, Kronos surprised him with his pants down and sliced off his genitals. Then he was like, what am I going to do with these testicles? So he threw them into the sea, plop, plop, which then started to foam. Fizz, fizz. And out of this foam emerged Aphrodite, the goddess of love and sexual desire. And that comes together in the performance element of your piece, Natural History of yes. Copper. Yeah. Talk to me a little bit about what that looks like. Okay. I'm trying to metabolize this information and make it comprehensible or interesting or poetic for the viewer who came to see an art performance. I am not a scientist. I am not an environmental advocate leading this campaign on the ground. And what I can do is make something aesthetically engaging. I am teaching this workshop at... MIT, and it's called Minds and Others. At the same time that I'm working on this film and this book, um, Satchel History of Copper. And I was giving my students background to copper, which involves material science, mineral economics, and so forth. And I had a series of talks, like artist talks to give coming up. And I thought, well, I can't talk to these people who've come to see an artist talk like I just talked with my MIT students. What can I do? And I sat on it for a while, and then I woke up in the middle of the night and I was like, oh, I know, I'll perform as Venus of Aphrodite. And so I converted all the language about the background information, this empirical background, 
into a first-person point of view. I'm Aphrodite, goddess of love and copper. You might recognize our alchemical symbol from the women's liberation movement starting in the 1970s, but originally in antiquity, the symbol was meant to resemble a hand mirror, which back then would have been made from polished copper or bronze. Many assume that as the goddess of love, the mirror symbolizes vanity, but others know that a mirror's ability to reflect also symbolizes a revelatory power, an inner secret. Here is mine. I am up in you. Your body needs me. I already course through your veins, and for some of you, I regulate your heart. I might even be in your snatch, enabling libidinal pleasure as I have been since at least 400 BCE, evidenced in this copper-based intrauterine device. And while you need and desire me, above five milligrams a day, I weaken you. If you are someone who has been overexposed to me, I will affect your breath, skin, and mental functioning. What seems most sovereign, your own body, becomes violated by another who profits from your labor and your energetic output. It's a way to also implicate the viewer, the audience. Implicate as in copper is actually is in our body. It's also something that we rely on. It's in our homes. It's in the plumbing. It's in our digital networks. My argument is that our contemporary beings are predicated on copper. And I feel it's incumbent on us then to know and be responsible or have a better understanding about where it comes from just be connected to this mineral that really dates the start of civilization um, and yet is the number one toxic polluter and has polluted 40% of America's waterways. Where does the majority of the world's copper come from? So the majority of copper comes from Chile. Um, the United States is a major contributor. Um, China is a growing contributor. The tailings, like the byproduct of mining, sits around in these piles of these newly shaped mountains that then leach toxins into the earth and the water for decades afterwards. And it's rare that governments or corporations are responsibly dealing with the tailings and the uh, really kind of inestimable harm that it does. And what does the extraction process look like? What does copper ore look like and how do you get the copper out of it? I can paint you a picture of Bingham Copper Mine, which is in Utah. And it's an hour, 45 minutes outside of Salt Lake City. It's three miles wide and 3,000 feet down. It feels sublime and it feels like a perverse sense of sublime. So you come to the top of the mine and you look down and then there's these explosions happening, something like every 13 seconds, they're timed. Um, someone somewhere is pushing this button. And you see little trucks kind of, it's just like a moonscape. It's one of the very few man-made things that people can see from outer space. So this is also considered one of the cleanest and safest mines around the world. 
And they're really quite a leader in terms of integrating technology and mitigating harm. But if you ask a, a scientist or a researcher, what does it mean to have something that's the cleanest and the safest mine? And his answer was, copper is civilization's necessary evil because it's impossible to not have any toll on the environment or on people. Hey, McKenzie. Hey, Mike. Thank you for taking the time to talk to me. Um, so you work at the Bingham Copper Mine just outside of Salt Lake City. Is that right? Yeah. Open for about 115 years. Um, largest man-made excavation in the world. And how long have you worked there? I imagine not the full 115 years. Close. Uh, actually, I've worked for Kennecott for 30 years. And what do you do there? Um, I am a uh, maintenance coordinator. Um, I coordinate a lot of the repairs on ancillary equipment, uh, water trucks, fuel trucks, cable trucks, welders, service trucks, loot trucks, all the ancillary equipment. I feel like my idea of what mining is is from the 19th century. <laughs> like it's like um it's like Snow White and the Seven Dwarves and like they've got their, you know, pickaxes, but what does a contemporary mine actually look like? So, like right now, uh, we have haul trucks hauling material. They haul 350 tons of material per load. Each scoop, an electric shovel digs, is about 160, 170 tons per scoop. The dipper itself is large enough uh, that you could drive two minivans into it. And that's what's scooping the material loaded into massive haul trucks. So the, the dipper, that's like the guy that has the long articulating arm, and then at the front is like a, like a scoop or a bucket. Is that right? Yeah, it's a dipper, just like a, a Tonka truck scooper. That would scoop up the blasted material and load it into a hull truck. And when you say blasted material, what does copper ore look like? And I'm assuming that you have to dynamite it, and then that's what the dipper is picking up. Is is that right? Uh, it's not dynamite. It's actually um, similar to the Oklahoma City bombing material. Um, that we use. It's kind of like a fertilizer agent. There's diesel fuel. There's a, a variety of components they put in there. Typically, the drill rig will drill a hole typically about you know, 70 to 80 feet down. You'll pack it with blasting material. So then they'll blast the muck. And so the shovel isn't actually digging the hard rock. It's just loading the blasted hard rock. So uh, typically, we send 550 uh thousand tons a day of ore on a conveyor belt to a processing plant. So when you typically blast, it's kind of a grayish rock. And there's certain areas of the mine that have a phosphorus green look to it. That's copper bearing. You can't really see the copper, but it's locked up in the rock, a grayish rock. So we blast it to the size of oh, maybe a watermelon and smaller. That goes into the gyro crusher. From the gyro crusher, it goes down to about a cantaloupe size and a lot of fine material, too. There it goes to the concentrator, where it goes into a giant ball mill where it'll crush it even finer. And that's how we're able to unlock gold, copper, silver, and molybdenum through that concentrator process. Giant mill, just a mixing mill with giant steel balls that crush it. 
then from there it's liquid form about the consistency of hot chocolate and then it goes through flotation cells reagent and air we're able to froth or float copper particulate that sticks to a bubble and floats to the top and then from there we dry it we smelt it we refine it we pour uh, copper plates gold bars silver bars and uh, all part of the process it's mainly a copper mine but they still produce many uh, many ounces of gold a year too and the the mine i was told is three miles wide and 3,000 feet deep at this point. Does that sound accurate? Yes. Yep. So what is that? I mean, I'm having a hard time wrapping my head around that. So I guess, you know, when you, when you come to work, what do you see? Um, I see a giant hole in the ground and my shop or my area of work is right on the rim of that shop. We have a, uh, one of the largest shops in the world called the Copperfield Shop where they'll service all those haul trucks. And, uh, yeah, it's it's a massive, massive hole. And uh, just keep working it around the clock. And it's terraced. Uh, you'll see it's like a like a cyclone, swirling cyclone uh, vortex. What's the most common misconception that you hear? Probably that it's unsafe. There was a time when mining was extremely dangerous. Uh, if I look at the MSHA statistics going back to the early 1900s, thousands died a year in mining. I mean, one of the years in the 20s, I think it was 2,800 died. Now, with coal and non-coal, we get about oh, 20 to 25, sometimes 30 a year die in mining. Thank you so much. I really appreciate your taking the time to chat with me. I learned a lot. Thanks, Mackenzie. What impact does copper extraction specifically have on indigenous communities who mm. might be on the land that is rich with copper? Yeah. In the United States, for example, the majority of copper mining takes place in the West, disproportionately on indigenous territory. And historically, that precedent was set in this mining law of 1872, where even though the U.S. government signed contracts with indigenous groups saying, oh, yeah, you have sovereign territory, they then passed this other law saying to American pioneers going to the West to incentivize them to go and like find and extract and start businesses. They said, go ahead, go out West. If you find any valuable minerals, it is yours. Never mind if there's indigenous people there with their sovereign contracts. Your discovery of valuable minerals overrides their sovereign territorial claims. So you have these two disparate threads that you were interested in, reproductive justice and extraction and its impact on communities and the environment. How do you tie these together through snatural history? My first question was, where did the copper my snatch come from and from what mountains and who blew up those mountains and who got to say who blows up those mountains and what are my, what are my what are my options here i mean my question about both extraction and about reproductive justice really are questions about power who has power who has decision making power who should have power so it's ultimately for me a question about um, self determination and communities getting to decide whether they want 
their communities to be mined or their territory, their land to be mined. And it's also about women getting to decide whether to have children or whether to not have children. We've talked about chemistry, uh, healthcare, history. How does all of this inform your artistic practice? As mm-hmm. an artist, um, why are you so engaged in this type of research and how does that carry over into into the piece that you're going to be presenting? Historically, my work has focused on co-designing creative media and public art with low-wage workers, immigrants, youth, and women, um, which are demographics and communities that I feel like I, as an immigrant woman, I'm Chinese and Ecuadorian, that I feel like I can speak to. With Natural History of Copper, I um, there's a number of groups that I'm in conversation with. One is the Center for Biological Diversity, who just won this court case preventing this mine, Rosemont Mine, from going into southern Arizona. And um, they're very open and interested in having conversations with with an artist and seeing how the what they're doing can be amplified. I see myself, and this is really characteristic of the other work that I do as well, where I'm often like a bee transporting information and sharing information across sectors. Um, The information that I'll present at Creative Time is a performance lecture delivered as Aphrodite. And I also will have a natural chapel on view, uh, which is a participatory installation. Another one is a contemporary IUD, you know, the copper-based IUD. The third one, which might seem to be an outlier, is a motherboard, which is the central circuitry of a computer. And a motherboard, it's conductive and it's copper that's, the electrons are passing through the motherboard, controlling the flow of information. This is the most important part of a computer. It's in our cell phones and iPads and so forth and um, desktops. Our relationships are managed through these circuitry. So the way that we manage our um, romantic libidinal relationships, whether that's through email or texting or sexting or people who are on Tinder, for example, or managing surrogacy and so forth. Um, So I'm arguing that it's also a piece of reproductive technology. And the chapel is uh, was designed by uh, an architect named Rafi Siegel, who's my um, co-teacher at MIT. And it was inspired by these tiny um, Byzantine fertility chapels that are really kind of tiny. And you'd go and you'd, you know, make an offering so you could become pregnant or perhaps, you know, whatever. And so it's a little tiny chapel made out of a tensile tent structures. And also um, it's sewn from this copper silk. It, it should be, I think it's going to be quite interesting and lovely to experience. The pessary and the IUD, both forms of birth control, and the copper in the motherboard is allowing women to, as you mentioned, uh, meet sexual partners, keep in touch with sexual partners, watch porn, whatever. So how how do the birth control components of this allow also allow women to fulfill their sexual desires? The IUD was the tool that would liberate women and enable their fulfillment of desire. So I would argue that the fulfillment for women in heterosexual relationships um, where you're having to manage sperm and so forth in pregnancy, I would argue that it's um, the fulfillment of desires part and parcel with 
access to reproductive technology, whether that's the IUD or the pessary or whatever else. Um, and I think the motherboard is also a way to control um, relationships as well and fulfill those relationships and so forth. And I should mention, we've been using women to describe people with uteruses. Yes. But of course, not all women have uteruses of and course. not all people yes. with uteruses are women. Yes. Um, if people are interested in seeing your performance and also visiting this natural chapel, where can they do that? So the Creative Time Summit takes place at the Great Hall on November 14th through 16th in New York City. And my performance lecture there, as well as the the chapel, this natural chapel, will be on view uh, there. You can also find more information uh, on my website, Marisa John, M-A-R-I-S-A-J-A-H-N.com, or on snatural.org. It's amazing that you got snatural.org. <laughs> well done. <laughs> Wonder who has snatural.com. Maybe best not thought about. I do. <laughs> <laughs> um, Marisa, thank you so much for joining me today. Thank you for having me. <laughs> Okay, so that is our episode for this week. Thank you so much for listening. If you liked it, would you consider subscribing? I don't know. Think about it. Glitter and Doom is made by me, Mackenzie Fagan, Ross Tuttle, Isabel Alcantara, Mira Al-Rahim, Naeem Van, and Eric Hagaseg. It is executive produced by Jonathan Leaf, Sasha Mathias, and Aziz Aisham. 